All right, let's pray together. O Lord, our God, our Creator, Redeemer, Father, and Friend, we come before you together again as your people. Some of us are rejoicing, eager to bring you our thanksgiving and praise. Other of us are weary, leaning on you for strength and seeking nourishment. Still other of us are broken in need of your healing hands. And some of us are doubting, asking you to help our unbelief and reveal yourself to us. We rejoice together for the safe arrival of baby Owen. We thank you for this gift of new life. We ask for your blessing on Alora and Jeremy as they adjust to life with a newborn. Give them strength, encouragement, and all the help they require. Be with Hugo as he learns how to be a big brother. We pray for those who are struggling with mental health, especially at this dark time of year. Help us to be a church that supports and encourages our brothers and sisters in this area. Give us courage to openly share our mental trials. We lift up those of us dealing with physical illness and injury. We pray for our brother Jamie, our sister Jane, and others in our congregation that are suffering with known and unknown afflictions. We ask for swift physical healing. As 2 Corinthians teaches and reassures us, Though we age and suffer physically, renew us inwardly day by day. And even when we don't know what to pray for specifically, Romans says, through wordless groans, your Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf. We pray for our town of Dundas, city of Hamilton, our province, our country, and our world. Many of the people we encounter at work, school, or activities think they have no use for you. Lord, don't allow us to get discouraged. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Give us the strength, the courage, and the words to share the truth about you, even when it feels like it's falling on deaf ears. Help us to remember that it is you that made their ears, and that you have the power to open them when you will. Thank you, Lord, that you made it so we don't need to worry about the timing of salvation. You control and know all time. And we pray for the, persecu the persecuted Christians around the world, our brothers and sisters in North Korea, where it is the hardest place to follow Jesus. Uh, those in Pakistan, where they face the most violence. Those in Nigeria, where the most have died for, your, for their faith. And in China, where the most churches have been atta attacked or closed. Thank you for the ability to worship in Canada. Please continue to allow that. Remind us of that blessing. And remind us, and remind us that we are still exiles. We boldly ask that you end the persecu persecution of those who believe in you, Lord. Let your kingdom come. And finally, we ask your blessing on Paul as he preaches your word for us today. Use his insights to deepen our understanding of scripture and of you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to um, the word. We're going to 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2, same as last week. We're reading from the NIV. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Matt. Uh, just two things before we uh, begin uh, to update you on. Um, Jane was unable to have her, her procedure on Friday due to uh, other mitigating health uh, concerns that she has, and so she's disappointed by that, uh, but hopeful and prayerful that God uh, will use other means uh, to bring healing uh, for her. And then, uh, I, I'm still stunned, but Owen is here this morning. Little Owen, seven, eight-day-old Owen, something like that. Jeremy and Alora are here too, so if you want to congratulate them and tell them how impressive that is, feel, feel free to do so after the service. Uh, a quick recap for all of you. Uh, uh, we are in a, a series on First Peter. We have just begun this series last week, and... Uh, Peter, we said, is preaching to, or he's writing this letter, I should say, to uh, converted Greeks in a part of Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey, who are experiencing, or about to experience, some pretty significant persecution. And so they are being uh, potentially persecuted for their faith uh, and having harm done to their bodies, having uh, themselves being thrown in prison, for, for, for example, these kinds of things. Most certainly, they're already facing some serious discrimination uh, because of their faith. And so they're being locked out of social life. They're not being able to uh, participate in uh, economic life in the places where they live, this kind of thing. And they're being pressured to conform to the Greek way of life, the Roman way of life. They're being pressured to make the emperor their god. They're being pressured to participate in idol worship. They're being pressured to participate in uh, the feasts that celebrate the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon. And Paul, uh, Peter really wants to encourage these Christians in the midst of that kind of cultural pressure. And so he wants to give them a durable faith that can, that can stand in the midst of this cultural pressure. And so he describes them in verse 1 as exiles. And that's basically what we focused on last week. That one word that these Christians were exiles. Other translations use uh, the word alien for this Greek word, or, or the, the word stranger, or the word traveler. And the broadest definition, or the broadest interpretation, the meaning of this, is that Peter wants these Christians to remember, in their heart of hearts, as they, they face these hardships, that this world is not their home. Yes, they're going to suffer here. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, they're going to feel pressure to turn away from their God. It's not going to be easy, but he wants them to remember, look, this earth, this world is your temporary home. You are a sojourner here. You are a traveler here. You are an alien here. Yes, get involved in the life of the, the society that you're in. Go ahead and build houses. Go ahead and, and start businesses. Go ahead and raise your kids here and all that kind of stuff. That's good. But don't forget, this is not your lasting home. Your lasting home is a heavenly home, an eternal home that will never, ever, ever fade once you, uh, once you arrive there. Now, why is that an encouragement? Think about this. If this world is your home, 
If this world is the, the place where you were created to be and remain in for your entire existence, if this is it, what does that mean for you trying to make a life here? Trying to accomplish your dreams, trying to achieve your hopes, trying to get the things you want. It means you've got a lot of pressure, friend. You've got a lot of pressure to make the most of this life because it's the only one you've got. And so if you have set your heart's desire on a family, you've got to do everything you can to make that happen. If you have set your heart's desire on being able to travel the world and experience all the different cultures within it in this life, you better make a lot of money. And you better be able to, to avoid getting attached to different communities, etc. Because you're going to be on the road a lot. If you've made a, 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 um, a, achieving a certain level of a lifestyle, a certain size of home, a certain type of vehicle to drive, it got, the list goes on and on. If you make anything in this life the thing that is going to give you satisfaction and joy and contentment and make you say, ah, it's good to be alive, you've got to make it here. And if you don't, tough noogies. Sucks to be you. You ended up on the bottom instead of on the top. But Peter says, listen, all of us are going to live in this world with unfulfilled desires. Desires that are good, okay? We're not just talking about sinful desires. We, we, we don't want those to be fulfilled. But we've got good desires. You want to meet someone. Maybe you want to marry and start a family. Maybe you do want to start a business. Maybe you want to be a missionary in a foreign land and, and see all kinds of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. These are good desires, aren't they? Maybe you want to plant a church someday. Great desire. But if you put your hopes and dreams in those desires here and now, you will be crushed by disappointment. You will be driven by the need to succeed. And your contentment is sucked out of your life. And so Peter says, don't forget, you were made for another world, friends. And that other world, yes, it's this world renewed and, cre and re reborn. We're, we're reformed Christians here, or at least I am. And so I believe that, that, that the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation will be right here. We're made for right here, but not the right here you see now. It's the right here you will see when Jesus returns and he finally dispels the world of all the evil that still rears its ugly head in our lives. So that's last week. That's why Peter, or yep, Peter. I'm always worried I'm going to call him Paul the whole time. I hope I don't. You know it's Peter. Peter calls them exiles, but he doesn't just call them exiles. It's not just that they're exiles. That's not the totality of their identity. In fact, he calls them in verse 1, elect exiles. He says in verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Their full identity is not just exiles, but chosen exiles. In other words, where they live, who they are, is no accident. It is not dumb luck. No, 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 no. Their suffering that they're experiencing in their time and in their place, the life that they're living, it is not simply random. No, no, no. It is a result of the fact that they have been chosen, that they are the elect exiles 
of Jesus Christ. They are a specially chosen people of God. Now, what we're going to do this morning is, I promised this last week, is we're going to unpack this doctrine of election. Now, this is not something I would normally do. I normally don't take an entire service or entire message to unpack one specific doctrine, but it's here. And it is absolutely central to Peter's argument that he's going to make throughout the rest of the letter. And, in fact, the doctrine of election is prevalent throughout the entire scriptures. And, on top of that, it is really, really hard to understand and hard to accept. And so we're going to dig deep into this doctrine together this morning. And uh, I've warned several people that we might be here a little longer than normal. I, I apologize, Grace Kids and nursery people. But it might take us a little longer than normal. And we're not going to have our typical question and answer period after the, serv- after the sermon. We're going to save that for after the service. I will stay here after the service. If you want to pepper me with questions about this, feel free. Uh, we'll have a bit of a... a, a back and forth about that. But we're going to look at this, this passage because it's, or this doctrine, because it's so central in this letter that in order for us to completely understand Peter's point for the next five chapters, we have to understand what he means by this doctrine. So first of all, what is this doctrine of election when Paul, Peter says to God's elect scattered throughout these provinces. What is he talking about? He's talking about this doctrine that says this, basically. If you were given a thousand chances to believe in Jesus Christ, one thousand out of one thousand times, you would say no. You heard the gospel a thousand times in a row. You were invited to make a decision for Jesus Christ. On your own, you would reject that gospel and that Jesus Christ every single time, unless, and this is a very important unless, God opens your heart to receive that message of salvation. Let me put this another way. The doctrine of election teaches that you cannot make yourself a Christian. It is impossible for you to make yourself a Christian. This is one of the unique things about the Christian faith when you compare it to the great religions of the world. How do you become a a Buddhist? How do you become a Muslim? How do you become a Hindu? Well, it's very simple. You do certain practices. You adopt certain ways of living. You behave a certain way. You say a certain set of things. And you are able to become a Muslim. You just do it. You become a Buddhist by following the eightfold path. There's a list of eight things. And if you do those things and practice those things, then you are a Buddhist. But what about a Christian? A Christian can't do anything. You can't turn yourself into a Christian. There is no amount of doing, no amount of of behavioral change, no amount of adopting a way of life that is going to turn you into a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't act until God acts in your life first. Nobody makes themselves a Christian. Now, this is what Jesus said himself. And I'm going to be flying through a bunch of passages in Scripture pretty quickly. If you want to follow along, go ahead and try. 
But I will tell you what passage I'm looking at each time and, and explain it to you. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Listen to these words. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 35, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That sounds good. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. Hmm. Verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that there are a certain number that God has given me and they will come to me. And when they do, I promise you, they will never be driven away. And the Pharisees, they haven't believed in Jesus. And, and he says that in verse 36. He says, I told you, you have not seen me and still you do not believe. Now, why is that? Skip down to verse 44, where Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. The reason Jesus gives these Pharisees for, for their hard-heartedness is that they have been, not been drawn by God the Father. And, and see, if he does draw them, that's Jesus' point. If God the Father does draw them, you will believe in them. This is the, the doctrine of irresistible grace. And in verse 37, it says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. Not probably will come to me, not may will come to me, not likely to come to me. No, they will come to me. All he gives will come to me. Now, why does the Bible say that you can't come to the Son unless the Father draws you? Why does the Bible say that you cannot respond positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ unless God does something in you first? Well, if you're part of Jessica's reading group, the Bible reading group, You've already encountered this why. You go back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you probably, if you're in that group, you've read Genesis chapter 6 by now, you'll remember this is the story of the flood. Now, before the flood happens, Jesus, God says this in Genesis 6 verse 5. He says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that, listen carefully to this, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's categorical. There's no room for a little bit of goodness inside human heart, the human heart. It is completely and totally corrupt. We call this the do doctrine of total inability. Unable to do good because the, the, the orientation of the human heart is only evil all the time. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to start over. And he decides to save one little family and he puts them in the ark with the animals and you know the story of the flood and everybody else on earth is, is destroyed and God cleanses the earth and he saves Noah and his family. But in chapter 8, verse 21, just a few uh, verses later, this is after the flood and Noah and his family are, are being uh, let out of the ark and they're going to reestablish the human race and it says this in verse 21 of chapter 8. It says... The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So the, the human nature has not changed, but God is changing the way he is going to engage with human be beings. This is the doctrine of in inability. 
And it says that, that human beings cannot, on their own, do the very thing that Peter talks about in verse 2. And Jonas is working really hard to keep up with me. We're back in 1 Peter 1, chapter, verse 2. It says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What? To be obedient. To be obedient to Christ. It doesn't say to believe in Christ. We're going to talk about what that means next week. Okay? But the point is, right now, Peter is talking about us being changed to be obedient to Christ. The Bible is saying up until this point, unless something happens in us, we are unable to do that. Now, what does this mean, not able to do it? Not, it doesn't mean physically. It's not like I am able to lift 10 pounds, but I am unable to lift 500 pounds. It means we can't want to obey. We can't want to do the things that God calls us to do. If you take a lion and you put a lion in front of a bowl of oatmeal and in front of a, bowl, a plate with a steak on it, that lion, 1,000 out of 1,000 opportunities, will choose to eat the steak and it will refuse the oatmeal every single time. In fact, the lion, even if it is starving to death, if you put a bowl of oatmeal in front of a lion, a lion will not ever eat oatmeal. Why? Well, any zoologist will tell you, the lion is capable of ingesting the oatmeal. They're capable of eating it, but they can't want to. They can't choose to because they're a carnivore. In fact, they're what's called an obligate carnivore, which means they are obliged to be a carnivore. They cannot be anything but a carnivore. This is their nature. And scripture basically teaches that outside of the intervening grace of God in our lives, we can't want the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I put a bowl of your favorite ice cream in front of you and say, eat it, you say, no problem, unless you're like on a diet or something. So let's just keep that out of it. No problem, and you, chew, you eat it all up. But if I put a bowl of monkey brains with hippopotamus poo on top of it and I say eat it you're gonna say I can't eat that I just simply cannot and I say what do you mean you can't eat it your mouth doesn't work your your stomach isn't able to to or your your throat can't swallow no you'll say I, I can't bring myself to do this and this is not just an Old Testament teaching this is a New Testament teaching in Romans chapter 8 verse 7 the Apostle Paul now says this he says the mind Governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. This is why, friends, you need to be born again. Kevin preached about this a couple weeks ago. In order to... The new birth, every Christian tradition believes the new birth is absolutely necessary. Well, you can't birth yourself. This is John's point in, in his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in verse 13, listen for it. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The point is this, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, 
and you chose to follow him, and you really did choose to follow him, I'll get to that in a second, it means that he chose you first. That's the doctrine of election. And it's all over the Bible. I'll just give you a couple of verses from the New Testament. Acts chapter 13, verse 48, talks about how the Apostle Paul preached the gospel in a certain place. And then it says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. All who were appointed to eternal life. By whom? Who does the appointing? God himself does the appointing. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, Praise be, well, verse 3, I like verse 3 too. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, verse 5 now, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4, says this. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. It's very interesting. Paul is saying there, we know you've been chosen because the gospel came to you and you received it. How do we know you've been chosen? What's evidence of the fact that you've been chosen? The fact that you're a believer. Belief, according to the Apostle Paul, is evidence of election. One passage that is probably well known to many of you is Romans 8, verse 29. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And of course, our text as well. Now, this is a hard teaching, okay? It is a hard teaching in two ways. It's a hard teaching to understand, and it's also a hard teaching to accept. Because you see, if you're thinking hard about this, all kinds of questions pop up in your mind very quickly. You say to yourself, whoa, whoa wait a minute. You, are you telling me that I don't freely choose God? Are you telling me that God sort of forces me into faith? Is he violating my freedom? Am I just a puppet? Maybe you're wondering. Does God forth... And what about the non-elect? What about those who don't believe? Do they not believe simply because God decided not to let them believe? That seems unfair. They haven't had a chance. They're, they're done before they even get an opportunity. These are some troubling implications, are they not? Let's name them. Let's be honest about them. And this has, has led some to think about election in a bit of a different way. And particularly, it's this issue of the relationship between God's choosing and God's foreknowledge. In our passage, it says, once again, it says, you, to God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then in the Romans 8 passage I just read, one more time, it says... Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And the argument is this. You see, God chooses us, but he makes his choice based upon our choice. God's foreknowledge is that he, he knows beforehand what we're going to choose. 
He can see down through the corridors of history. He can see the future and he sees who will freely choose him to be a believer. And then he makes his election based upon that. But, but this means that God's foreknowledge simply really means his foresight. And if that's the case, then it seems a little bit redundant. Why would God fix what's fixed? Why would God have to predestine those that he's foreknown? If he knows that they're going to believe, why does he have to choose them in any way? What's the point of that choosing? But more importantly than that, think about this. God looks down through the corridor of history and he sees the decisions of every human being that has ever lived at all times, whether believer or unbeliever. But it says that God only predestines those he foreknows. But the Bible teaches that he doesn't predestine everyone to salvation. Even though he knows what every human being is going to, to choose, it says that, that God foreknows a group and he predestines a group. It doesn't say that for those God, for the sum that he foreknew, that sum he predestined. It says those he foreknew, but we know that God foresees the, the choices of all human beings throughout time because God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. This is because, friends, the foreknowledge of God means much, much more than just the foresight of God. In the Bible, the foreknowledge of God is, is about God setting his affection on someone. It is active. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is, is actually in uh, the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. This is God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What is, what is, what is God saying to, to Jeremiah? God is saying that, that before you were born, I put my love on you. In, in, G, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to a group of people, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you think that means that God never, like Jesus never foresaw them, that he never knew about their existence, that he, oh, there you are, I didn't know you were there. That's not what he means. What he's saying is, is he does not have a personal relationship with them. He is not in, he has not had his affection laid upon them. Because you see, foreknowledge in the Bible, it is an active personal thing. It's, it's even used uh, to know something is even used as a euphemism, a, 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 a euphemism for sexual uh, intimacy. So foreknowledge in the Bible, God's foreknowledge is, you could say, it's to forelove someone. That's why you're chosen. Because God has loved you before the creation of the world. The reason you believe, if you have any interest in the things of God, if you have any, any attraction to Jesus Christ as Savior, it means that God has already entered you and begun his work of transformation in your life. This is why John says in 1 John 3, he said, or 1 John 5, he says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. Now, 
maybe that deals with this idea about foreknowledge and foreseeing and how that relates to election, but let's face it, we still got some objections, right? Troubling implications that we must wrestle with. And probably the number one question people have is, is if God does the choosing, why doesn't he choose everyone? And it's a question I have. He could, couldn't he? And yet he doesn't. Why? Well, I promise you this. Um, you're probably not going to like the answer. The Bible has an answer, but it's an answer that, that the human mind and the human heart is not exactly oriented to receive. The first part of the answer is this. Your problem with election is typically not about your election. It's typically about someone else's what looks to you like non-election. You have people in your life that you love very much. And you maybe have had opportunity to share Jesus with them. And it has just fallen on deaf ears. And the thought of them entering eternity without Jesus Christ is almost too much for you to bear. And so you say, God, why? Why, why save me but not save them? I can't believe in this election thing because it seems unfair. Why don't you just save everybody? Wouldn't that contribute to your glory in a profound and remarkable way? Well, here's the thing. First of all, you want to know God's plan for others, but God won't tell you his plan for others. There's a place at the end of the Gospel of John where Peter is being restored by Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Jesus, Peter says, yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says to Peter, this is what's going to happen to you in the future. I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. And Peter's like, oh. Well, what about him? He's pointing to John. What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, I don't tell you his story. It's not for you to know. I tell you your story. That's above your pay grade, Peter. We know very little of the why around why God chooses some and does not choose others. We, 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 don't know, we don't know much about it at all. All we know is, is that somehow God passing over some and electing others accomplishes his glory. It puts his justice and his mercy in, 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 in 401K, or what's that called? No, not 401K, in 4K high definition for us to see. And you might say, I don't like that. And I sympathize. But Paul says in Romans 9, he says, who are you and who am I? With all due respect and kindness, I say this with compassion and sympathy, who are you to talk back to God? See, we want this to work in our heads perfectly. But it is more important for us that things we understand to be true come from what the Word teaches. Even if, even if it makes it hard for us to believe, if, even if it makes a, a, all kinds of questions pop up in our minds, and I'm, I'm, I know that there are more questions that are popping up perhaps in yours, that some are choosed and others are not, and it violates free will. Don't I, don't I get a, a say in all this? Are you telling me that I'm only, I'm only a Christian because God decided to make me a Christian? I had nothing to do with it? Because you see, these, 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 these objections, I don't like it that some are chosen and others aren't, 
and it violates my free will, they're actually related because people will say, if I can, if I can believe that God doesn't violate free will, well, then I can, I can accept the fact that some people aren't elect, that some people don't believe because it's their fault, it's their problem. That's not so bad. Let me respond to that. First of all, some are chosen, others are not. Ask yourself this question. Are, do you believe that you are saved entirely by grace? What is grace? It is God's undeserved, unmerited favor given to you. It has nothing to do with you. What did you contribute to your salvation? Nothing but the need for it. If you believe that, that salvation is a gift that you received entirely by grace, whether you like it or not, you do believe in election. Why are you a Christian and your neighbor or your brother or your mom or your best friend or your buddy at work, why are you a Christian and they're not? And you say, well, I'm, I humbled myself. Okay, well, why did you humble yourself and they didn't? Well, because I listened to the word as it was preached. Okay, why did you listen and they didn't? Do you see where I'm going with this? If you say uh, anything other than, I don't know, but God chose me, then you don't believe that you're saved entirely by grace. But I've never met a Christian who doesn't want to say that they're saved entirely by grace. They don't want to say they were more humble or smarter or more wise. Of course not. Then why do you believe and they don't? Because of grace. And if grace is true, election has to be true too. And people might say, well, hold on. I, I don't like it because it violates my free will. First of all, what's so important about your free will? If your kid is about to run out into traffic and get hit by a car, are you going to say, well, I don't want to violate his free will. He's made his choice. Violate the free will for 10 seconds so that he can have freedom to enjoy life for the rest of his days. But you see, it's only actually unfair that God chooses some and doesn't choose others if everybody deserves to be saved. But none of us do. Imagine if you had five friends, okay? You have five friends, and you're sitting around with these friends, and, and they say to you, you know, the recession, we're in a bit of a recession, the economy's doing bad, I'm having a hard time making my mortgage payments, or I can't buy that car I need, or I can't find a job, and I'm running out of food, or something like that. We've decided that we're going to go rob a bank. And you say to them, bad idea. In fact, you plead with them, listen, this is a really bad idea. First of all, you guys don't know how to do this. Second of all, it's not like Ocean's Eleven, okay? It's really hard to rob banks and get away with it. Third of all, you're probably going to get caught and you'll end up in jail forever. Please don't do this stupid thing. And they won't hear it. And they say, no, we're doing it. We think we can pull it off. And they start heading out the door. And you take a baseball bat and you whack the last two of them on the head and knock them out and you drag them back into your apartment or your house. And the, the other guys, they take off. Those three, off they go and they rob the bank. And it goes terrible. And they shoot a guard and kill him. And of course, they're arrested. And now they're tried and convicted and put on death row. And so you go to visit them. And you sit down... And they say, the first thing they say to you is, this is your fault. And you're like, uh, what do you mean? Well, 
you only hit two of us. Why didn't you hit all of us? And your response is going to be, wait a minute, your situation is not my fault at all. Those two that I was able to hit and knock out and, and save, they have me and me alone to thank for their freedom. But the truth is, you get what you deserve. I'm not obligated to take all of you. I'm not obligated to take any of you. And in fact, it was at great risk of myself to take the ones I did. Friends, listen, you can't, you can't say that God sends his message to all and if he decides to go and open the eyes of some, it's unfair. Every one of us is not sinning. Every one of us is not a sinner because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Let that sink in. We're not we're not sinners because we sin. It's not your behavior that makes you a sinner. It's your, the fact that your nature is a sinner that makes you sin. We do as our nature is. That's why we need the new birth, remember? And, and the third response to this is, is, is to say, actually, those who are saved are not having their, uh, having their freedom violated. Remember what John 6 said? It said that cannot come to the Son unless the Father draws you. Jesus uses this word draw. He doesn't say that unless the Father forces you. He says he draws you. What he means by that is unless the Father enables your heart, opens your heart, gives you that desire for Jesus. Remember, he turns the, 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 the monkey brains and hippopotamus poo into your favorite ice cream. Or, or better yet, actually, the lion can't choose the oatmeal. But what if the, re the lion is reborn as a kid? And now this oatmeal happens to be that kid's favorite breakfast because they put maple syrup in it and blueberries and stuff and it tastes awesome. And now it's irresistible and the kid's like, oh, I can't wait to get this. And you say, no, 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 back off. We haven't prayed yet. And you're like, I can't wait. Hurry up and pray because all they want to do is eat it now. They got to have it. This is a result of the new birth. And we freely desire according to, or sorry, we freely choose according to our desires. Friends, is this not your experience? If you're a believer here, does this not describe exactly how it is for you? You went from hearing someone say, you need Jesus in your life, and you go, eh, maybe. Or you went from hearing someone say, you are a sinner who needs salvation, and you go, come on, I ain't that bad. Look. We all mess, mess up here and there. Or you went from being a person who heard Christians talk about a God who created the universe and upholds everything and he loves you and he has set his affection on you and you go, that's crazy, man. Big bang, 14 billion years ago, there's no such thing as God. You went from that to at some point going, maybe. And then at some point going, it's got to be true. I, it's got to be true. I believe this stuff. And someone says to you, Jesus died for your sins. And you say, yes, he did. Amen and amen. How'd that happen, friend? You figured it out? Is that really your answer? You figured it out? I've never met a single person who said, I didn't want to be, I don't want to, I don't really want to be a Christian, but I'm elect. So I guess that's that. 
Every believer says, I'm a believer because I want him. I need him. I have to have him. My life is nothing without him. Now, I know there are more objections. I've given you some of the major ones. I'm going to face any more that you have after the service. We've got to move on because we've been at this a while. I've got to talk to you about what's so wonderful about the doctrine of election, why you should want it. Remember, first of all, Peter is speaking to sufferers. He's speaking to sufferers. You see, the doctrine of election means that you can bear your suffering because the implication is, is that there's a purpose in it somewhere. It's not ultimately pointless. There's a lot of suffering around the world and a lot of it in your life, and you're asking yourself, what's the point of this? What good can come from this? Well, if God has set his affection on you and he reigns and rules over the entire universe and he is orchestrating all things for the good of, for his glory and the good of those who love him, that means that you and the part you play in this world, even through your suffering, is accomplishing his perfect will, which is his glory and your good. I'm not saying that, that every bad thing that you have happened to you is actually good. I'm not trying to do some sort of mind trick on you. I'm not trying to tell you that, like, look, you know, if you, uh, where am I in my notes? Here we are. If you've got a cancer diagnosis, you're supposed to tell yourself, oh, it's actually good, not bad. That your divorce is actually a good thing, not a, heart, a heartbreak. That your addiction is something you should be thankful for. Not at all. What I'm saying is, is that God is not done with you. And that all things, ultimately, the good and the bad, God works together for his glory and for your good. And ultimately, he will work that good out in you. That's why the Apostle Paul can say that our light and momentary sufferings. Can you believe that? He calls what you're facing right now. Some of you are facing huge mountains of pain and sorrow and heartache and you feel like you can barely breathe under the weight of it because it's so heavy. And Paul has the audacity to call it your light and momentary sufferings. How can he say that? Because you're an you're a stranger, because you're a pilgrim, because this is not your home. But you can be sure that these light and momentary troubles are achieving in you a glory that far outweighs them all, and you can't see it yet. But that's the promise, you see. That's the power of this doctrine. And you're like, but I don't want it. I don't want the suffering. I know. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I don't want it either. But you live here. And because you live here right now, you're going to get it. Because we're in the we're in the in between between the already saved but the not yet fully redeemed. Second thing is, the doctrine of election means that you always have hope for unbelievers. There is no impossible convert in the world. Okay. Look at the Apostle Paul. Do you think the first Christians, if they were to pick a guy who's never going to believe this stuff, don't you think he'd be number one on their list? persecutor of the church, takes great joy and pleasure in rounding up Christians and throwing them in prison. And yet, 
he was saved. Why? Election. See, election means, friends, that you never, ever, 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 ever give up on anyone, okay? Don't ever give up on anyone. And this empowers your evangelism, too, because those who say, you know, well, look, why do we have to evangelize if, if election is true? God's going to do what he's going to do. Ah, oh, friends, listen. God just doesn't, he doesn't ordain just the end. He ordains the means. And he says the way that your friend is going to come to faith is by you sharing the faith with them. That's how it's going to happen. So go share the faith with them. But don't freak out if, if you don't know how to say it. If you're worried that you say the wrong thing. If, you, if you're afraid that you sound offensive or, or close-minded. Or, or if you fumble and mumble and bumble your words and you're not very dynamic and you can't answer every objection. And you're like, man, maybe I shouldn't do it at all because I, I might make things worse rather than better. Don't worry about it. Your job is to just sow. And let God make it grow. No pressure, okay? Just open your mouth. And it also will mean, friends, that you will stand in awe of your own faith, okay? Listen, if you believe in the doctrine of election, you should wake up every morning with a heart full of profound, astounding joy because you, you're like, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. How can that be? Because you see, why don't they believe? We want to go, ma, 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 ma. But we should do a little bit more of, why do I? And get on our knees and give thanks in deep humility that, that God in his, his supernatural grace and his, his sovereign mercy decided to let me know that he loved me and that, that through Jesus Christ, I could know him as the one who loves me. Third thing is, this is actually the kind of love you need, all right? And the love you really want. Because you see, this is completely unconditional love. You are unconditionally chosen. There's nothing inside you that makes you worthy of the love of God. Not a thing. And you're like, oh, I'm offended. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you're not worthy. That doesn't, your worth comes from Him. It's not coming from you. Look, husbands. If your wife asks you, why do you love me? It's the dumbest thing in the world for you to say, well, because you're a babe. Or, man, you can cook. Or, you're the funniest, you know, you're just so funny. Or, you're really good at sports. Because there's a great chance that every single one of those things eventually will fade away. We all sag and get old no matter how much I lift weights and try to stop it. It's still happening. You may be sharp till the end, but you're probably not going to be as funny as you are now. My father-in-law, he's 91 years old. He says your taste buds start to die when you get old, so you don't know if you're a good cook or not anymore because you can't taste it anyway. But why does God love you? Deuteronomy says that, that, that when, when Moses says to the people of Israel, he says, God didn't choose you because you were greater than other nations and you were better than other nations. In fact, you were little and kind of whiny and not very impressive at all. But because he loves you, you ought to live in obedience to him and follow his laws. Notice, it's a circular argument. Lord, why do you love me? Because I love you. But this is a love that is absolutely secure because it's absolutely free. 
This is a love that is set upon you before you were even a twinkle in your grandparents' eyes. And it means it's guaranteed. You will never, ever lose it. A lot of people think of Christianity kind of like baseball. You know, in baseball, you get a hit, you got to run to first base, and between home plate and first base, you got to make sure you don't get tagged and make sure you don't get thrown out. You've got to beat the throw, right? But now, here you are in first base. You got to go all the way to second, and you got to go all the way to third in order to get home. And every time there's another hit or something, boom, off you go again. <laughs> get to second base. Okay, I'm safe again. Third base, I'm halfway there. I got to get to third base. Another hit, off you go. But what if you get tagged out? Didn't run fast enough. Didn't read the sign. You're taking your lead off. All of a sudden, the ball's getting thrown to second. You're like, oh no! You dive back. Boom, nailed you. It's the worst thing in the world. I was not a good baseball player because I didn't pay enough attention. A lot of people think of Christianity that way. It's up to you to, you're in, but it's up to you to stay in and get yourself home. But the doctrine of election says no. <laughs> he who began a good work in you, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen, some of you right now, because of the suffering that you're facing, that it's so heavy, feels like, feels like there's a knee on your chest and you can't breathe at times because it's almost relentless and you're like how you're like i just want to give up you just want to give up you want to give up even your faith you want to give up because you're like this not doing anything for me doesn't seem like he's doing anything for me i'm asking and asking and asking and it still sucks i wake up every day and it still sucks and you feel like you're hanging on only by your fingernails And you're thinking, I don't know if I can hold on much longer. The doctrine of election means he's holding on. Really, you're not holding on. He's holding on for you. And he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I told you we'd be long. I apologize, but it is desperately needed to our ears.